Good evening, it's good to see you tonight, and we're excited to be back for another study from the book of Numbers. Uh, tonight is Numbers chapter 15, and if you've already read through this, you probably recognize there's some interesting things in number, Numbers chapter 15. Uh, I've just entitled the study tonight, Offerings and Sacrifices, uh, because that's the focus of this chapter. Now, there's going to be some other things we're going to talk about in the chapter, but but most of the content of this chapter deals with various offerings and sacrifices. Most of the sacrifices that are dealt with do not involve what we would call a sacrifice made for sin. Uh, some of these sacrifices are for various reasons. We're just going to jump right into the chapter. Uh, if you remember, uh, Numbers 14 ended with more rebellion, with more problems. The children of Israel finally decided, okay, God's not going to let us in the land. Let's go fight. And so they went to fight and they got just beat all to pieces. So, and God reminded them, that's not how this is going to go. You're not going to do this by your own strength. You shouldn't have had courage because you now are motivated. I'm the one that's going to give you this land. And so God starts that chapter by remind, this chapter by reminding them of something. So he says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you've come into the land, you are to inhabit. Listen, which I am giving to you. God reminds them, I'm giving you this land. This is a gift from me. Now, as you see right here, when you come into the land, you are to inhabit. They're not there yet. They're still in the wilderness. They're still wandering. Uh, it's going to be a while before they get to actually go into the promised land. And the things that we're fixing to look at regarding sacrifices are not things they did in the wilderness. These are the things that God wanted them to do when they got to Canaan. Now, you say, why would you say that? Well, because that, that's what God says. And secondly, there's going to be things involving rams and goats and bulls. They, they don't have those right now. They're out in the middle of the wilderness. They're eating manna. God gave them quail. They're, they're relying on God. But at some point, their flocks are going to grow, their crops are going to grow, and they're going to be able to offer all these things that God blesses them with. And so we're going to see grain offerings as well and things like that. But again, this is God's plan for them once they get into the land of Canaan. Now, also recognize there's a large part of the population that's being spoken to who are never going to get into the land of Canaan. Um, and again, it's because of their rebellion. God's not going to allow them to enter into the promised land. So here's the things that God says, I want you to do once you inhabit this land. He says, you make, when you make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering, or in your appointed feast to make a sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd of the flock. We're just going to read through this and then we'll talk about it. Then he who presents his offering to the Lord shall bring a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah, of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of oil, and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering. You shall prepare with the burnt offering of the sacrifice for each lamb. So that's the lamb sacrifice. Or for a ram you shall prepare as a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah, of fine flour mixed with one-third of a hen of oil, and as a drink offering you shall offer one-third of a hen of wine as a sweet aroma to the Lord. So there's the ram offering. And when you prepare a young bull as a burnt offering or as a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a peace offering to the Lord, then shall be offered with the young bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with half of a hen of oil. And you shall bring as the drink offering half a hen of wine as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Thus it shall be done for each young bull, for each ram, and for each lamb or young goat according to the number 
that you prepare, so shall you do with everyone according to their number. So, interestingly enough, these sacrifices are not about sin. They're not making a sacrifice for sin. He makes a great, uh, a very uh, precise distinction that these offerings have to do with free will offerings, with the appointed feast days, and with also when they were fulfilling a vow. And so you look back through, and there's times that you actually see this in action as they're making an offering. And notice the differences. They had options. You can offer a ram or a goat, or a lamb or a goat, rather. You can offer a ram or a bull. But, but depending on which one you offer, there's going to be a different proportion of grain and wine. Now, why? I don't know. Maybe because that's the way it smells. You know, he says, I want a sweet-smelling Sarah. I don't know. But if you notice, it seems like you have less of an obligation with grain and with oil and wine if you offer a lamb or a goat, which is the most common sacrifice that you see that Israel made. Now, there, are, there is a little bit of, uh, I guess, not argument, but a little bit of different ideas about this ephah, because if you look in the text, the word ephah was added by the translator. Some think, well, that should be an ephah. Some think, well, it's one-tenth of the proportion to the weight of the lamb, goat, the ram, or the bull. Now, regardless, we don't have to make those sacrifices, so we don't necessarily have to know those exact numbers. Uh, but what's the point? God, uh, at times, wanted the people to give of their own free will. A sin offering was definitely something that is motivated by guilt, and we're going to look at that just a little bit later. So once you committed a sin, you realize you committed a sin, you went and you offered something for that sin. But a lot of these offerings are just you're going to the feast, you're making an offering or a free will offering, or you decided to take a vow knowing that at the end of that vow you have to give up something. And so even with like what we see with the Nazarite vow, once that vow is over, there's an offering. You see with... Um, People that were cleansed of unclean diseases. They had to go and make an offering. So there's lots of different offerings that aren't just necessarily a sin offering, a sacrifice for sin. So there were other sacrifices made for other purposes is my point. So jumping into verse 13, it says, All who are native born shall do these things in this manner in presenting an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger dwells with you or whoever is among you throughout your generations... And would present an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do. So he's making a distinction now and saying, look, if you're born of the Jewish nation, this is what I've commanded you to do. But if someone is living in the land with you, a stranger, uh, sometimes we would, once they're converted to Judaism and circumcised, we call them a proselyte. He would say, I want them to do the same thing. If they want to make an offering, they have to follow this uh, prescription that I've given you in these different proportions. One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you. So same ordinance for everyone that dwells in the land. An ordinance forever throughout your generations as you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. So he's, he's uh, very thorough in making sure they understand that this is going to be the case for anybody that lives in the land. Okay, so then it says again... The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you. So that's how we start the chapter. Then we move on toward a different type of offering. And he's going to say the same thing. This is what I want you to do when you come into the land. Then it will be when you eat of the bread of the land that you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord. Now, when I think heave, I think throwing something or we won't go there. But 
You, you think about a heave offering. What, what was the heave offering about? Well, it seems to be something that was a, basically giving back a portion of what God's blessed you with. You're eating of the bread. What are you going to do? You're going to offer some of that for the Lord. You shall offer up a cake of the first of your ground meal as a heave offering, as a heave offering of the threshing floor. So shall you offer it up of the first of your ground meal. You shall give to the Lord a heave offering throughout your generations. And you're going to see this all throughout the Old Testament when you look at the, the offerings that God asked them. He wanted the first. He didn't want the leftovers. He didn't want the garbage or what, was, or what we didn't want. He said, I want the first. I want the best. I want you to give that to me first. Make that offering. Then you can have what's left. You get the leftovers. Okay, so that's, that's actually all we're going to deal with these particular offerings tonight because we're going to see that a few more times. We're going to spend more time on something that's probably a little bit more, I guess, harder to discern, and that is the sin offerings. And so we're going to go into chapter 22, and again, if you read through the chapter, you probably noticed there were things about unintentional sins and what the King James and New King James call presumptuous sins, and we're going to talk about those for the bulk of our time tonight. Numbers chapter 15, verse 22, if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by the hand of Moses from the day the Lord gave command and onward throughout your generations, then it will be, if it is unintentionally committed, without the knowledge of the congregation, that the whole congregation shall offer one bull, one young bull rather, as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the ordinance and one kid of the goats as a sin offering. So the priest shall make an atonement for the whole congregation of the children of Israel and it shall be forgiven them for it was unintentional. They shall bring their, their offering an offering made by fire to the Lord and their sin offering before the Lord for their unintended sin. Now before we move on, well actually let's go ahead and read verse 26 because it goes along with it. It shall be forgiven the whole congregation of the children of Israel and the stranger who dwells among them because all the people did it unintentionally. Now we're going to deal with the unintentionally deal in just a moment. But what I want you to see is this first commandment was not about an individual committing a sin. It was about the whole congregation being involved in sin. You notice the language again. It's about the knowledge of the congregation. The whole congregation has to offer up one young bull. The priest shall make an atonement for the whole congregation of the children of Israel and it shall be forgiven them, okay, their offering. And we have that, that, that uh, plural pronoun language going on here that it's about more than one person. But then he talks about an individual. So first we have the congregation, now we have the individual. And if a person sins unintentionally, then he, not they, but he shall bring a female goat in its first year as a sin offering. So it's a different offering for an individual than it was for a congregational sin. And we'll get into that again in just a moment. So the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally when he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make atonement for him and it shall be forgiven him. You shall have one law for him who sins unintentionally for him who is native born among the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwells among them. So just like the offerings we looked at a minute ago, God says it's going to be the same for you and for anybody that lives in the land. So Numbers 1530. But the person who does anything presumptuously. So this is different. We're changing gears now. We have people that he says sin unintentionally. But now we have someone who sins presumptuously. Whether he is native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach of the Lord. And he shall be cut off from among the people. 
because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. What's the sacrifice? There is none. Wow. There's a lot going on here. So what is this talking about unintentional and presumptuously? And if you read the King James, you notice the word is sin of ignorance. So similar, but may, maybe there's better words that could be used. So before we dive into this, I, I just want to kind of go through some things because we're going to relate this to us today as well. Have you ever heard somebody say all sin is sin? Is that true? All sin is sin, right? Yes, that's true, okay? A sin is a sin. Whether it's an unintentional sin or it's a, uh, what I'll call a deliberate sin, sin is sin. And he doesn't make that distinction. In fact, if you go back and you study Leviticus, you'll realize that as he goes through unintentional sins in those chapters, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I'll go ahead and keep going. Uh, if you go through Leviticus chapter 4 through 7, you'll see a lot about unintentional sin, and what he keeps reminding them of is guilt, 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 guilt. So there's sin is sin, right? We can establish that. Now, what about this? God sees all sin as equal. Is that true? I've said that, by the way. God sees all sin as equal. Okay, well, we're, we're going to dive into that. How about this one? No sin is worse than another. How do we reconcile that with the law of God? Because God doesn't, God doesn't say that. He doesn't say all sin is exactly the same. All sin has the same punishment. All sin is deserving of death. Now, we can talk about that later as it relates to the New Testament. But, but what we actually see is God actually makes distinctions between the type of sin here in Numbers 15 and also in Leviticus 4 through 7, there were certain sins that he said, I want you to make an offering. And there were other sins where he said, no, you cut them off from among the people. They don't get to make a sacrifice. They're going to be cut off from the people. And so again, I got a little bit ahead of myself, but this is your homework. I want you to go read this later. Yes, it's going to be tedious. It may be mind-numbing for some of you, but, but read Leviticus 4 through 7 because this is a lot larger uh, uh, it's a wealth of information about unintentional sins and some of the sacrifices. Okay, so let's slow down. I feel like I'm moving 100 miles an hour. Sins unintentionally. This is the definition of unintentionally. And the word sin is actually not in the text, by the way. It's, it's just showing a transgression, a type of transgression, we would say. A mistake or an inadvertent transgression. So what does inadvertent mean? inadvertent not intentional right so pretty good translation there unintentional versus sin of ignorance really the the what's said here is it was something that was done inadvertently and we'll try to quantify that in just a moment but that was contrasted with the presumptuous sin and that's actually two words translated into one word and and it's not actually one word that's a combo it's actually two hebrew words that they just translated with one word presumptuously so the first of those words is the word, we would say room, that's how you pronounce it, and it, is, it means high, and the other one is yod, which means a hand. So it literally means sins with a high hand. You say, well, what in the world does that mean? Well, that's actually how the ESV translates this passage, he who sins with a high hand. Now, probably what I think really encapsulates this is the New American Standard where it says defiantly. A high hand. Think about this. Sometimes people commit sin, right? People commit sin. Justin prayed that tonight. We commit sin, right? Do we always do that defiantly? Or do sometimes we just slip and fall? Sometimes we're not guarding ourselves. We're not guarding our mouth and we say things we shouldn't. Right, Darlis? 
I did that, by the way. She, she knows what I'm talking about. Sometimes you're not guarding your mouth, and you say something that, that you shouldn't have said, and you go, I should not have said that, right? Well, does that make it justifiable? No, God said it's still a sin, and I want you to make an offering for it. But you may not have necessarily been defiant toward God, but then there's those times where we go, you know what? I know it's wrong. I'm doing it anyway. And that's defiant. That's what we would call presumptuous sin and what the New Testament calls something else, which we'll look at in just a moment. But one of the things that we notice here is that knowledge matters. The way that God went about either punishing this sin or allowing for a sacrifice was dependent upon knowledge. Now, do we see that taught in the New Testament? We actually do. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, 47. He said, That servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare him or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes. So he doesn't say because he didn't know that there was, there was no sin involved. He just is saying this. He shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given... From him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. The more mature you are and the more you know about the will of God, you want to know something? That actually gives you more responsibility in fulfilling the will of God. You say, well, why not just be ignorant? Wouldn't ignorance be blessed? No. Because in this realm, everyone is sinful and needs to know Jesus Christ, and it's God's will that we conform to the image of Jesus and that we grow in knowledge and wisdom so we can be a light to the world. It's not just about us and being ignorant and being safe or whatever. However you want to look at that. We have a purpose, and God wants us to be a light that you have. And that's what Jesus says here. It's the same with Israel. Now think about this. We might think, well, how would they commit a sin accidentally or, or inadvertently? They've got the law of God. Okay. So we've been talking about how many commandments were in the law? 613. Now, do you know every commandment in the law of Moses? You don't, do you? I don't either. I don't either. I mean, I've read them, but I, but I don't have them all memorized. I couldn't write them down. And you know what? You know what is different from us and them? I've got the Bible, and they didn't. I can read it. I could read it for months and just focus my mind and attention on it. I could probably memorize it if I really was diligent, right? They don't have the law. There's one copy of the law. They didn't pr put it on a printing press and distribute it among the people. They're going to mess up at times, and somebody's going to have to go, hey, you remember that's wrong, right? And they're going to go, we didn't know that. So what do you do? Well, somebody brings it to the, the knowledge of the congregation, and the whole congregation repents, and they have an offering for sin. That happened. Is, isn't that logical that that would happen? Yeah, it's logical. You know what? Sometimes we need to be reminded of the things that God has told us in the New Testament. And we may do things and somebody has to say, hey, look, that's not right. You shouldn't have done that. And we go, you're right. I shouldn't have done that. I'm realizing now that my actions were sinful. And we repent. It's the same thing. And so this is very different from what we see in other cases where somebody really knew the will of God. They were just being defiant. And that's where this comes in. Intention and motive matter. And that's what God shows us here. Intention and motive matter. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 30, we have this same idea. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's starving, yet when he's found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. You know, in this case, we would go, well, stealing's a sin, but we wouldn't say, hey, look, all sin's the same. 
Because if somebody comes and steals your car because they're greedy and covetous or they're stealing something, a gun from your house so they can go shoot somebody, that we look at that a little differently than somebody who's not hungry but starving and steals a loaf of bread. Now, here's the, here's the real trick of this. It's still wrong. The stealing is still wrong. You know what he says? He's still going to have to make restitution. In fact, he's poor and he may have to give up everything he owns just to pay for that bread. But you know what people don't do? They don't look at that person as despicable. They look at them as desperate. They did something wrong, but you know, but you know what he contrasts that with? Somebody who steals someone's wife. He said, that's different. We don't look at a thief who steals bread when he's starving and, and despises that person, but he says, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He does not, he who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get. His reproach will not be wiped away for jealousy is a husband's fury, therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give him many gifts. So he says, you know, the guy that steals something because he's hungry, he can repay that and nobody's going to despise him. He said, but you steal somebody's wife, I don't care what you give him. You can offer him all kinds of gifts and there's no recompense that's going to satisfy his fury. You know why? Because not all sin is created equal. It's not. Some sin is heinous and it's defiant and it's malevolent, and it's injurious, and it's hurtful. And God makes that distinction in his law. And I'm not going to read this, so don't worry. We're just going to reference it. Because we're going to get into this, I don't know, 20 weeks from now, whatever. Maybe more than that. But Numbers chapter 35, go read this. Uh, this is the law that concerns refuge cities. And they had to set up several refuge cities within the land for people who killed someone to go flee so that the exactor of the vengeance, the avenger of blood, couldn't kill them until they could weigh out the evidence and find out whether it was inadvertent or whether it was a presumptuous sin. And you go through this chapter and you look and God says, you know, there's certain circumstances, we call them uh, extenuating circumstances, I believe, where someone might kill someone and not be guilty. They're not guilty of blood. But there's other instances where we can tell that somebody did that maliciously. And he goes through and he says, look, if they kill them with a piece of steel, they're, guilt, they're a murderer and they need to be put to death. And it, you, you go through the list. In, in numbers, we're not going to go through the whole list. But Numbers 35, it makes those different distinctions between what we might call an inadvertent sin and a sin that was planned out and was done intentionally. And it was a matter of defiance or even rage. Uh, and I know that there's certain times when in, in our law system that that we give people a pass for diminished capacity when they're raging. And I'm not saying, not trying to say that that's never a thing, but, but that's not the distinction that God made in his law. He said if it was done out of vengeance or rage, they're to be put to death. They're not innocent. Their blood will be upon them. But again, God did make provisions saying, look, we need to weigh this out, find the evidence, find out the motive and the intent behind why this person ended up dying. Now, here's another one. Exodus chapter 21, if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, kind of brutal, but it happened, right? It happened. Uh, oxen can be wild animals. Then the oxen or the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. Okay? So he's saying if, if an ox kills somebody, you kill the ox, but don't kill the person. But, look at verse 29, but if the ox tended to thrust with its horns in time past, and it has been made known to his owner, he who has not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. 
What was the distinction? You knew it was wicked, or not wicked, but you knew that this animal was dangerous, that it had a tendency toward violence, and you did nothing about it, you're guilty. And what was, what was the deciding factor? Well, in one case, this was obviously the first time the ox ever acted this way, but it killed someone. So the owner's not guilty. But he says, if it's already happened and you didn't do anything about it, you're just as guilty as the ox because of what you knew. Because of what you knew. And so God put a, a, a standard of judgment of, and verdict and sentence based upon people's knowledge. So aren't you glad that God's changed his mind and his attitude towards sin? That's a trap. <laughs> that's a trap but I hear that all the time I, aren't you glad that God's not like he was under the old law aren't you glad that God's changed his attitude because since Jesus has come he's all about love and mercy and grace and you know what's interesting is we have direct quotes not only from Numbers 15 but other places in the New Testament same language so let's go back to Numbers 15 I want to notice the relationship between these two things between a presumptuous or intentional sin and someone that despises the word of the Lord. Now that word despise there in the Hebrew means to disesteem. To disesteem. We might say disregard. Hebrews chapter 10, 26. For if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful, a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. You know what those two words are? Similar words to what we see in Numbers chapter 15. And this actually, this word willfully is only used one other time in the New Testament. And it's used in regard to elders when it talks about that they would take the oversight willingly, not by constraint. It, we, we would say volunteer. They would volunteer to do that thing. Uh, so what do we call it? Involuntary manslaughter and voluntary manslaughter. And what's the distinction there? Same thing as what we're talking about, unintentional and intentional. So when I, when I read this the first time, I remember reading this, I was pretty young. Man, that scared me to death. Because I guarantee you, after I became a Christian, I sinned and I did it deliberately. So that scared me, okay? So let's talk about it. What's he, what's he talking about? Who's he talking to? Well, for one, he's writing to the Hebrews who know the law. That's one reason why he quotes out of the law over and over. Plus, we have a whole lot of other texts within this book that, that helps us understand the point that he's making. And he has said things to them like, Brethren, take heed, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We see that in one place. Another place, he talks about a person who has been renewed, falling away, and how it's impossible to renew them again to repentance because of their falling away. So we have that kind of language already. And here he's talking to them about not forsaking the assembling of themselves together, which doesn't just mean don't miss a church service, by the way. That's not what he's saying. You should miss a church service, but that's not what he's saying, okay? He's saying keep assembling, keep encouraging, keep exhorting one another, keep provoking one another to good works. Why? Because if you don't, and you go back to Moses, understand you can't go make a sacrifice when you're in willful sin. Now, we don't do that, right? We, we wouldn't try to make a sacrifice to pay for willful sin. Unfortunately, a lot of people do that. A lot of God's people do that. I, I can't tell you the number of people that I've talked to that said, listen, I, I know it's a problem. I know I'm addicted to that thing, but I pray every night. I pray every night. 
And, and they're going to go that night and they're going to watch pornography and then they're going to pray to God and say, God, forgive me. And then the next day, they have no plans of changing that or trying to struggle against that. And so they think, well, if I just slap that on there, God's going to forgive me because God is going to forgive me through the, the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're going to get at that more in a little bit. What is willful sin? It's defiance. It's, it's with a high hand. It's I'm going to live in sin. I'm going to commit sin, but I'll make a sacrifice for it. And Israel had that misunderstanding multiple times. And who's he writing to? Who's he talking about? He's not talking about somebody out in the world. He says, after we've received the knowledge of the truth. After. There's not another sacrifice that's coming. Jesus is the only sacrifice. They're wanting to turn away from him and go back to slapping some good work or some action to pay for their sin. You cannot do that. And the idea that you can live in defiance against God and pay for it somehow is not biblical anyway. It's not biblical. Acts of penance will not forgive your sin. Indulgences in paying money to some church will not forgive your sin. There's no sacrifice except the sacrifice of Jesus that will pay for your sin. And Jesus has a requirement. He says the only thing you have to look forward to is a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Again, who's he talking about? People who were saved who went what we would call apostate. They turned away from God. They departed from the living God is also the language he uses in Hebrews chapter 3. Now listen to verse 28. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law. You know what that word rejected is? Same word. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word that we saw in Numbers 15. It means to disesteem, to disregard. Someone who disregards Moses' law. It's not that they didn't know it. They read it and they said, don't care. I'm doing that. I'm doing that thing. And what did he say? They died without mercy. No provision for sacrifice, no provision for atonement. You died without mercy. You're cut off completely from the people. And you know what's interesting? Uh, he doesn't stop there. He said, now that we know about Moses and what happened under Moses' law and how people died without mercy because they were defiant to Moses' law, of how much worse pun punishment do you suppose shall he be thought worthy? Now listen to the language. Who hath trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant, by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. Listen, does, does God change his attitude about sin? Absolutely not. He's paid for sin. He doesn't change his attitude about it. He says, if you think, it, if you think a person deserved to die under Moses' law, when he rejected and defied Moses and the word given by angels... How much worse punishment do you suppose it'll be when someone was sanctified by the precious blood of Jesus and they stomp on Jesus Christ and they say your blood is nothing but common blood and they insult the spirit of grace? That's strong language, isn't it? That's in the New Testament because God hadn't changed. And oh, by the way, right after he makes all this distinction in Numbers 15, then he gives us an example of presumptuous sin. He says, while they were wandering in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. What a terrible crime. Right? That's how we look at that. that what a terrible crime. Everybody go, what's, what's terrible about picking up sticks on the Sabbath day? Well, they found him. And those who found him gathering sticks, it says, brought him to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation. And they put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. Well, it hadn't been explained what should be done unto him. So I guess this, we put this in the unintentional category, right? No. No, they just don't know how to, to carry out the punishment that's already been given. So they're waiting for direction. 
And the Lord says to Moses, the man shall be surely put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. <clears throat> so the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the, com the camp and stoned him with stones and he died. We'd look at that and we'd say, that is harsh. That is harsh. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. Just like Jesus said, unto whom much is given, much is required. Yes, there were nuances of 613 commandments that people weren't going to remember, but this is one of the original ten. And they knew those. You know how I know they knew them? Because they've been wandering in the wilderness for quite a while. They've been on the road for months and years, and they kept every Sabbath day. Every one of them, they kept the Sabbath. It was something they did weekly. This man's not ignorant. He knows the law. He just defied it. He just defied it. And so there was no mercy. They didn't say put him outside the camp for seven days or go to the altar and make an atonement. They said kill him. God said kill him. Cut him off from the people. Now, you know what we don't read about in the Old Testament after this? People picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. We don't read about it. You say, God was harsh. God is holy. That's the truth. God is holy. He made his people holy. And he told them, this day is holy to you. Don't profane it. And he profaned it. And God said, well, if you don't want to be holy, okay, that's fine. You're cut off from the holy people. That's what happened. See, that's the thing we forget about in the law of Moses. Is God made those people holy. And he said, I want you all to be holy. And when the congregation commits a sin, even if it's unintentional, I want them to be holy, so go make a sacrifice for them. And if somebody is doing things that are unholy in defiance of God, I want them gone. Because the people need to be holy. There's a big difference in this and this. Christians sin. We sin. We fall prey to our desires. Sometimes we're deceived like Eve. But we sin. But Christians struggle against their lust. And they submit themselves to the will of God. They do not struggle against God so they can do what their lust tells them to do. And I'll tell you, if that's what we think about, the God, uh, about God's grace, we must think he's a fool. Like we're going to pull the wool over his eyes. He did not send his son to this earth to go through agony and torture to pay for sin that he hated so that he could watch his children that he made holy live in the same sin that put the stripes on Jesus' back and the nails in his hands. God takes sin seriously. First John says this, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So maybe again, you read that and you go, well, I've sinned. So does that mean I'm of the devil? Well, look at the language. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. It's being contrasted with practicing righteousness and what? Practicing sin. Living in sin. And we see the same language. Later in this book, John says this, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about it. I want to stop there for a moment and think about this. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin who does not, which does not lead to death, he will ask. Ask who? 
Well, I didn't have this up here, but go back a couple verses. And you'll notice he's talking about, if we ask anything according to the will of God, he answers us. But this is not according to the will of God. Okay? What he says here. If someone is sinning a sin leading to death, here's what he says. I do not say that he should pray about that. Don't pray about that. He said, what in the world is a sin leading unto death? We're going to get there. Verse 17. All unrighteousness is sin. Amen? All unrighteousness is sin. And there is sin not leading to death. So even in the New Testament, what do we have? A distinction made about the types of sin that exist. There is sin that doesn't lead to death. Now, we haven't talked about what that is, but then there is sin that does lead to death. Or did I already say that? You get the picture. Now, part of the problem is some of the translations add the word a. There is a sin leading to death. That's not in the text. It's just sin. There's sin leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. This is about practicing sin, living in sin, living in defiance. Notice, there's sin leading to death. Don't pray about that. Well, what does that mean? If somebody's living in open rebellion to God, I don't need to be praying for their forgiveness. You know why? Because that's not according to God's will. You know what we see in the Bible? We see that sin leads to death. In the Old Testament, it led to physical death, sometimes immediate death. In the New Testament, it's often referred to that a life of sin or a course of sin or, a, or, a, or the way of sin leads to death. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. So that whole idea that aren't you glad God changed his attitude about sin and grace and all that. Paul says, no, that's not the way it is. We don't live in sin because we're under grace. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves, slaves to obey, you are the one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Whoever practices righteousness is righteousness, but whoever practices sin is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. And he says he doesn't know God, and he's not born of God, he who lives in sin. Why? Because it's defiance. It's rebellion. You know what we don't see in the Bible? We don't see rebellious people being forgiven. In fact, Paul wrote the letters that he wrote because some people were rebelling. And you know what he was trying to do? He was trying to get them back on course. Some of the things they didn't know. Some of the things they thought were good. One of the things they thought was good was we can glory in the fact that we're so tolerant of a man's terrible sin. A sin that he said is so terrible that not even the world practices this kind of iniquity. But they were glorying in it. And he tells them, your glorying is not good. And he says, you should be mourning rather than glorying. And he wrote them a letter. And he told them these things. And he said, I'm sorry that I had to write that letter, but I'm not sorry because it produced fruit in you. It produced this, it produced sorrow. And that godly sorrow, he says, produces repentance leading to salvation. Do you see that? Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. There's that word again, death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication in all things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. 
Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. I want to deal with verse 12 first. He says, I didn't write to you, and I believe what he's saying is I didn't merely write to you just so that guy could repent and this other guy could have his son stop sleeping with his wife. That's not the entire reason. I wrote to you for you, for your sake, for the congregation's sake. And he said, it got the desired effect. What's worldly sorrow and godly sorrow? Worldly sorrow is you confront somebody about their sin and they'll cry and they'll say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And really on the inside, they're thinking, man, I'm really sorry I got caught and I'm really ashamed right now and I hate how this is making me feel. But as soon as these people leave, I have no intention of changing my life or doing any better. I'm going to keep doing this even though I'm really embarrassed that I got caught. That's worldly sorrow. Just because you feel bad when you get caught in your sin, that's not repentance. Repentance is not feeling sorry. The sorry leads to repentance or it leads to death, one of the two. And you'll know whether it's godly sorrow or worldly sorrow depending upon where it leads you. And that's what Paul says. Godly sorrow leads us to change. And he says, look at what it did in you. You sought after godly matter. How do you know? Because I see the fruit of your repentance. You were diligent. You cleared yourself. You feared. You had a vehement or a, very, a burning desire. What zeal, what vindication. You've proved yourself to be clear in all this matter. He said, once you had the sorrow, you did everything within your power to clear yourself of that guilt and to change. That's what God's people do. That's what God's people do. When we throw up a smoke screen for our sin, and we make excuses about it, and we defy against God, I'll tell you what that is. That's sinning willfully. And what you have to look forward to is not come you blessing to my Father. It's fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. And I know that's a hard thing to hear. But God's made us holy. And he does not pardon the sin of those that are living in rebellion. If you can find the exception of that in Scripture, I will sit and listen. I can't find it. I can't find any person that was living in rebellion and defiance against God when he said, your sins are forgiven. What I do see is the difference between Saul and David. Is Saul said, no, I didn't sin. <laughs> I didn't sin at all. And finally, Samuel pins him down where he goes, okay, you're right, I sinned. And please forgive my sin because I don't want to lose my kingship. And he goes, no, I'm done with you. God's done with you. You're not sorry. But you know what we see with David? When David is confronted... And it may be really strange to us to think that David had committed a heinous sin like he did and didn't know. But it took someone opening his eyes before the weight of his sin really hit him. And he said, my sin is ever before me. And against thee, the only God, have I sinned and done this iniquity in your sight. And he said, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter as snow. Create within me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Why? Because you're near to the broken and contrite heart, not the rebellious. God is a God of mercy and pardon for people who are truly sorrowful toward him and repent of their sins. For we know him that said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So John says 
He who is born of God keeps himself. And that word means to guard. And you know what? We see this. We're not going to go into detail. I just want to reference it for a moment. This is why it's so critical for us to wear the whole armor of God. You know why? Because Satan is going to find our vulnerabilities. And here's the thing about unintentional sin. We all commit it. But the thing is, if you commit enough unintentional sin, it will have a hardening effect on you. And pretty soon you'll be committing deliberate sin. We have to be very careful and wear that armor and make sure that he's not finding the places where we're vulnerable. Because when, when, once you start doing something, you go, man, I did it again. I did it again. I did it again. I did it again. Well, at what point does it stop become, does it stop being unintentional and start being intentional when I know it's a problem that I have, but I'm really just not being diligent? So he says, he who's born of God guards himself. He puts on his armor. He protects himself. Why? So that the evil one won't touch him. So you can be able to withstand the day when Satan tries to fire those wicked darts against you. So again, the Lord spoke to Moses as we close out the chapter. He says, speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to put tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. And that you may not follow the harlotry to which your heart and your eyes, your own eyes are inclined. And that you may remember and do all the commandments and be holy for your God. You know that statement right in the middle of the screen there is pretty huge, isn't it? That you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. God says, I recognize your human nature. I recognize your desire. I recognize the temptation that is before you. And so I want to give you something to do to remind yourself of who you are and whose you are, that you are holy. So I want you to put tassels on the borders or the corners of your garment. And I don't know if these are exactly what they look like, but as he gives a description, this is what modern day Jews still today 3,500 years later are still wearing on the corners of their garment these tassels, and they're called a, a tzitzit or something like that. And why do they wear those? He says, this is a reminder of my law. So every morning you get up, you put on those clothes, you see them. Well, after a while, they just become part of your garb, don't they? But you know who else was wearing them? Everybody else inside the nation of Israel. And you're walking around and everybody's got these tassels on. And every time you see those tassels, what did God want you to remember? I want you to remember my will. I want you to remember my commandments. Now, we don't wear those things today, do we? But I'll tell you, when we're around each other and we surround ourselves with God's people and we see the good works that they do in their life, they see us treat each other with love and compassion. When we see them doing righteous things, it is a reminder to us of who God has made us, that we are holy. And we need that reminder. That's why we meet on Wednesday nights, isn't it? We need that reminder. We need that spurring. We need that encouragement to tell us, don't get caught up. Don't get trapped this week because you're out in the world and there's lots of temptations. You've got to be on guard. You've got to be reminded. God's people had to be reminded. They had Moses with them. They had the law with them. But he said, I want the tassels. I want you to make sure you're diligent so that you remember my will. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I'm the Lord your God. Listen, listen to the language. He didn't say, I'm the Lord, the God. He said, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land to be your God. I'm the Lord, your God. Whose we are matters more than anything else. And how we live and how we submit ourselves to God shows him whose we are. Is he our God or is he just God? He's always God. But he wants to be our God. Is he your God tonight?
Because if he's not, you need to make him your God, your Father, by being united with his Son, Jesus Christ. And he will pardon every sin, unintentional and intentional alike. The blood of Jesus will cleanse you from your sin and wash you white as snow and make you holy. If you need that tonight, we call you to come forward. If you've been living in willful sin, you've been in rebellion to God, maybe you felt sorrow tonight. What are you going to do with that sorrow? Are you going to continue living that way? Or are you going to take a stand and say, no, I'm not going to live this way anymore because he's my God. We want to help you with that. We'll bring that need before him. We'll pray to our God and he will answer. But you've got to repent. Come and have a seat as we stand and we sing.